Hi friends, I'm Tanya Luna, psychology researcher and educator. And I'm Brian Luna. I think ventriloquism is a sham. And you're listening to Talk Psych to Me. A show where we take research out of the lab and into the street. Let's get into it. We want to start by giving a special shout out to Joey and Olga today, who we just recently found out were listeners of the show. Big ups to Joey and Olga, a.k.a. Jolga. Thank you for giving us a reason to keep talking psych to you. So what are we talking about today? Okay, so today we're going to keep analyzing the psychology of... Seven deadly sins. We're down to two, right? We're down to two. And our penultimate sin and my personal nemesis... Lust. Gluttony. (laughs) How would you define gluttony? Does it have anything to do with food or, or, or outside things coming into your body? Like, uh, Excuse me? You can be gluttonous with soda or food. Yeah, I mean, so it turns out gluttony both as a sin and a psychological phenomenon. It's a bit slippery. It sort of wants to be everything. Get it? As gluttony does. Yeah, so people say glutton for punishment. They say, you know, social media gluttony and things like that. But originally, gluttony only referred to excessive food and maybe drink because it comes from the Latin meaning gulp down or swallow. So I was thinking that our focus today could be on food and specifically the psychology of overeating. Okay. What do you think? I think it's great. I wonder if we can start by sharing our observations of each other, Mm -hmm. because I feel like we've both (laughs) seen each other overeat. (laughs) How honest can I be here? Let's be honest. Are you going to edit me? I'll decide once I hear what you have to say. Okay, I'm going to go first. My sense, you somehow don't know your body, and you insist that if you don't eat lunch, you'll be totally fine, and then you become wolfishly hungry. And then you eat four people's worth of food in one sitting. I don't think that's that true at all. That is my overall diagnosis. Wait, when was the last time I ate four people's worth of food? You are sort of pointing your eye fingers at me when we're talking about gluttony. What do you think happens when I overeat? Wow. So you're usually doing something. Not so much when you're writing, but when you're actually like working on like a, a new workshop or something like that. You have a tendency to just grab, and, and I'm talking some weird shit too. It's not like a meal. It'd be like a bowl of almond milk, a rice cake, and like a weird piece of like vegan meat that you found lying around. I've seen you go nuts with chocolate. That's your like indulgence, I think. I don't ever see you do it. I just see the afterwards when you're like, oh, and I'll be like, what's wrong? And you're like, I had chocolate for dinner again. <laughs> we have a we have a rule in this house. We have a thing called no parents. And we're allowed to kind of do whatever we want because yeah. there are no parents around. I'm questioning the <laughs> wisdom of that rule. It's bananas because we're like, frosted flakes for dinner? Sure. There's no parents. <laughs> oh, there's no one to tell us no. I'm it's sorry, a mom, if you're listening. <clears throat> I know. Me too. So I would actually put my own overeating more in the binge eating category, though. I don't know that I actually have the diagnosable level of this. So there is a disorder called binge eating disorder or bed for short, mm-hmm. which is fitting because I do like to eat in bed. But You just like to eat lying down. Here are the criteria, the diagnosable criteria. So binge eating episodes are associated with three or more of the following. Eating much more rapidly than normal. Yes, that's you. I do that. Eating until feeling uncomfortably full. Yes, that's you. Eating large amounts of food when not feeling physically hungry. I yes. don't know how you feel. Yes. All right. So you know. <laughs> Eating alone because of being embarrassed by how much one is eating. No, you flaunt definitely... it. You flaunt it around me. Are you kidding me? I've actually, while you were in the living room, have <laughs> stayed in the kitchen with the lights turned Listen, off. Listen, you do not have to do that. I'm not going to judge you. <laughs> I'd rather you eat with the lights on, spotlight. And then feeling disgusted with oneself, depressed, or very <laughs> guilty after overeating. That's you. And yes, I have felt that. So reading these criteria, I wrote these down earlier and I was like, oh, I do think 
these all describe me, probably I don't have those binging episodes frequently enough that it would cause significant distress or impairment in my life. But, and this is why I get so mad at you when you buy me candy and chocolate Because I'm the like worst that, husband in the world. Cream. But then you know what I have to do? I have to go all around <laughs> the house and hide it. I do want to share a resource for anyone that's listening and they feel like, holy crap, they're recognizing maybe that this is something that they have, particularly if it's coming up in a way that's impairing your ability to function well in your life. There's a hotline called the National Eating Disorder Association Helpline. And I'll also put this number in the show notes. It's 800-931-2237. Does it spell anything out? No. And I do think it's really important to talk about this because for some people, this overtakes your entire life. So one question that this might bring up is why do people binge eat? There's a comfort in it. And plus, you don't think, if I eat this entire steak, it's not like I'm going out and doing drugs or it's not like I'm going out and shooting yeah, heroin or something like that. Yeah, it's a more acceptable... Yeah, it's, it's, I'm going to eat it anyway. So I'm just, I, oh, I can choose man. to eat. And then I could, I, and I could do the work after. You know, like if I eat this whole pizza right now, you know what, I'll just work double time tomorrow. I'll just work out twice as long tomorrow. The amount of rationalizing and having conversations with my food that I have <laughs> where I'm like, I may as well eat you now because I'll eat you eventually anyway. Like this is my pudding thing is where I'll be like, well, I may as well just eat all the pudding now and protect my future self from having to eat this pudding. So when we first discovered vegan pudding, this was, I don't know if you remember this, this was years ago at, okay, but this was at uh, Fairway and we were there and you were like, that's all I heard from the aisle over. They came in a container of three on top, three on the bottom. So six total. They were connected and you just peeled one off. And I remember seeing one day in the garbage when I was taking out the trash, there were three still connected. Yeah. You just tore off the lid. In my mind, it's just all one big container (laughs) with different pieces. So one explanation for overeating, especially binge eating, that sort of like almost like obsessive fits of eating Mm -hmm. that you've seen me have that you mock that I don't think you should. Uh, One explanation is that it is a kind of addiction and there is evidence to support that. So for starters, it seems to be passed down genetically. I can attest to this because my own mother, despite weighing all of 100 pounds her Mm -hmm. entire life, I used to, when we lived together, I used to walk in on her in the middle of the night, lights turned off. Just candy wrappers, chocolate wrappers everywhere. And she'll eat constantly to the point of feeling sick. And you laugh at me when I don't share my candy with my mother. But she and I would protect our candy stashes from each other. There's also a neurological basis for overeating. For example, neuroscientist Jean-Jack Wang and team found that people who are obese have reduced dopamine receptors in the forebrain and enhanced activity in the parts of the brain connected to the mouth. So the theory here is that food acts as a reward for the brain, which can compensate for lack of overall dopamine production. Hmm. So for a lot of people, the reward of eating can also numb feelings of boredom or when it becomes more addicting is often when it's it's a self-medicating approach to trying to mask feelings of stress, anxiety, depression, guilt, and shame. So does that mean then it's like this vicious cycle because you eat to feel better and then you feel worse afterwards? That's exactly so right. You, wow. That's exactly, And that's how you can get trapped in it. That stigma can actually perpetuate overeating. For example, researchers Angelina Sutton and Antonio Terracciano followed 6,000 participants over the course of four years, and they found that overweight people who experienced weight discrimination were 250% more likely to become obese. Hmm. So it's this self-perpetuating cycle where the more you're shamed, the more that actually leads to poor eating. 
overeating and then actually withdrawing more, which so, might lead to even less activity, exercise, and even more weight. Yeah. And the thing is that weight discrimination is one of the few remaining legal forms of discrimination. Mm-hmm. People will openly make fat jokes. People are legally allowed not to hire someone because of their weight. Really? In yeah. w- meaning like... Uh, except for, I think, like Michigan and a few local cities... For the most part, it's totally legal. So are you saying if I'm applying for a job at a library or something, if I'm overweight or obese, they can say no based on my obesity? Yeah, in most places, that's completely legal. For the most part, people won't do that. They won't be like, nope, too many pounds or whatever. Usually it's either unconscious or it is conscious, but people will never say it because there's such a stigma and such an association of being overweight or obese being associated with almost like a personality weakness, right? Where it's like, oh, either this person is lazy or they're not putting in enough effort. Sure. And I think this is so important to talk about because what we're seeing is that overeating is becoming the norm all across the world. So we can't keep looking at it as this personality deficit. The National Center for Health Statistics estimates that about 40% of adults in the U.S. are obese and 30% are overweight. That's 70% of our population, and that's on the rise. The World Health Organization, so this is looking at... The entire world. The entire world. They found that worldwide obesity has nearly tripled since Mm. 1975. About 40% of adults around the world aged 18 years and older are overweight, 13% obese. And being overweight kills more people worldwide than being underweight because it's associated with type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, sleep apnea, liver disease, depression, various cancers, Absolutely. I mean, it it opens the door up. I mean, like even with COVID, if you're on the verge of diabetes or something like that, then you're more susceptible to... You're at huge risk. So what do you think is going on? Why Why are people gaining so much weight? Well, I think since 1975, when you said the study started, I would say that the world is just experiencing more and more strife collectively uh, more, uh, so it's like more stress eating more stress eating oh. I, i'm not going to say that that's the whole that's the reason but i would say if i had to take one guess if there was one major contributor i would say it's that i actually haven't seen that theory i think it's a really fascinating theory i mean one one other theory is that we're living increasingly sedentary lifestyles so we're moving around less mm. and less Another theory is that there's greater access worldwide to fast, cheap, unhealthy foods. Oh, yeah. We'll definitely get into that more because I think that it's really like a systemic thing. Oh, not that's, just a, that's a brilliant idea. That make, I think that that is where it is. And uh, like you actually see countries, including really tiny countries where there's extensive poverty, once Western foods make their way into those countries, all of a sudden you see obesity skyrocket. Shit, you don't got to tell me that. I'm from San Antonio. I'm from Texas. And the amount of fast food places, mm-hmm. like I couldn't tell you where, I don't know, government buildings are, but I can tell you where each <laughs> jack in the box is yeah. on my street or in my neighborhood. And even like fast food places, like where you'd go and get gas. People are eating, getting their hot dogs and sandwiches and stuff like that. Don't there. you have that place in Texas where it's like gasoline and barbecue oh or something? Oh my God, but that Rudy's. So Rudy's is a place that was actually, when I ate meat, it was a barbecue place that was a gas place. So you'd go there and you'd load up on carbs and nitrates as well as for your car too. 
So it's like bad fuel for your body. They had good root beer, though. They had really good root beer. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so so we'll definitely get into some of the systemic stuff. But one confusing thing about all of this overeating is that you would think that our bodies would have a stopping mechanism, right? That would be like, hey, enough. We're good. So psychologist Paul Rosen, who we've talked about in the past, and his team wanted to figure out what was up. So they decided to study individuals with amnesia who couldn't form short-term memories. Hmm. So the way that they did this research is that they would feed them a meal, yeah. wait 10 minutes, and then they'd say, would you like to have lunch? And what do you think happened? They would say no. Incorrect. They would say, sure. No, I'd say, no, I will I will have lunch. <laughs> That's what I was saying. You interrupted me. See, you, you jump on there and then you don't give me a chance. <laughs> they would say yes. And then they would have another meal and then 10 minutes would pass. And then they'd be like, would you like to have lunch? Yeah, this is, um, it plucks at my heart. Because my father suffers from uh, early onset Alzheimer's and uh, dementia. It's really tough because originally when he was on his own and I had to start taking over his health, um, I became his primary caretaker. And it was really hard because what would end up happening is he would overeat. Yeah. Um, he would he would make dinner twice or he wouldn't eat some days because he thought he, would, he, yeah. he ate. Thank you for talking about that, you know, in case anyone's listening and, and that can be a helpful way to sort of spot some of those early signs. Yeah. I think what this research shows us is that we don't understand how our bodies work when it comes to food, because you would think that your body actually tells you, Hey, I don't need to eat anymore, but it's actually our ability to remember that we ate and our attention that helps us determine how much food we need. So it's based solely on memory. It's not like there's some kind of weird mechanism that won't let you swallow another bite. It's the fullness mechanism in the short term, but after about 10 minutes, that feeling for most people is gone. So at that point, it's not really our bodies or our stomachs or whatever giving us those signals. It's really in our attention and our memories. What's more, our bodies can be super easily tricked into eating more. If you wanted to get people to eat more, like if you wanted to trick me into eating more food, what are some things you would do? Sneak it into your air. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like maybe... Like if I'm just like walking down the street and I'm like... just like, did I just swallow something? I feel like I just swallowed a piece of sandwich. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'd also put it at the bottom of your LaCroix. Like uh, I I put tofu at the bottom of your LaCroix. (laughs) And you're like, why do I feel so full? I've only had four LaCroix. And uh, This is so gross. I'm never going to look at my LaCroix the same way again. I don't don't know. Like little Um, globs of tofu in my drinks. (laughs) And then maybe maybe sneak it while you sleep. So like just nocturnal eating. Mm -hmm. And then chew for you. Like be like... (laughs) (laughs) These are so gross. So it's actually... Way easier than what you're describing. The two biggest factors that seem to impact our eating quantity are other people, and I don't mean other people sneaking food into our bodies, (laughs) but other people and our environment. So for example, in one study, Tim Doring and Brian Wansink found that people who ordered food from an overweight server were much more likely to order more food. Hmm. Shiminzu Johnson and Wansik found that sharing a meal with someone overweight led participants to order more food and more unhealthy food. And so it seems that as humans, we determine how much to eat largely based on how much other people are eating. Thanksgiving. I guess that's like a a perfect example. Oh, I got two more stops after this. Or if you're behind in line, someone at a buffet, how much they eat is going to have a huge (laughs) impact on how much you eat. 
So how much our family eats, how much our friends eat, how much the people in our community eat, mm. that all impacts how much we eat. Yeah. There's another environmental aspect of it. Researchers Eric Robinson and team found that distraction leads to more eating. Hmm. So it's almost like Paul Rosen's amnesia study where people were forgetting that they were eating. When we're distracted, we basically aren't noticing the cues in our bodies. So we're don't watch how TV when we Don't eat. watch TV while you're eating. But there's more. Ooh. So Brian Wansick, who's done a lot of this research, and mm. Young Kim, they did another fascinating study. In this one, they gave moviegoers either medium or large tubs of free popcorn. In one condition, they gave them fresh popcorn. In mm. another condition, they waited 14 days, and then they served people the 14-day-old popcorn. And how would you describe 14-day-old popcorn? Stale. Yep. Then the moviegoers were asked if they thought that they ate more popcorn just because of the container size. Wait, so they went to this movie. Yeah. They were given popcorn. Yeah. And the medium people got the fresh popcorn. No, no, no. Okay, so let me say this again. So there were four conditions. Let's say group 1A, they got fresh popcorn that was medium. Group 1B, they got fresh popcorn that was large. Group 2A, they got stale popcorn that medium. was medium. And then group 2B, they got stale popcorn that was large. I would say both mediums group ate more popcorn. Oh, interesting. Okay, so here's the first thing they wanted to find out. So they asked people, do you think that the size of the container impacts how much you eat? Oh, but now I'm thinking the two large would have eaten more. <laughs> so let's see. So do you think the size of the container yeah. would have impacted yeah. you? Yeah. So 77% of people who got the large tubs said that they would have eaten the same amount even if they got the median tubs. No, they're, they're liars. They were totally wrong. So here's what happened. If you got the fresh popcorn... On average, if you got the large container, you ate 45% more. Okay. If you got the stale popcorn, which really none of us should be eating, it's 14-day-old popcorn. If you got the large tub, you ate 34% more. So I was right, the two largest. Yeah, so the, yeah. the larger the container, even if what you're eating is gross, is going to make you eat more. Yeah. I originally said medium, but I, in my mind, I pictured the larger one. Of course, I'm going to eat the larger because I'm just going to keep eating until I could see like I've made a dent in it. And people didn't realize that that's what was happening. I'm going to just give you one more study. This is one of my favorite studies, also <laughs> by Wansnick and team. In this freaking study, they gave participants bowls of soup that automatically refilled without the participants realizing Ew. it. <laughs> Personally, I was like, how can I get one? It's <laughs> so gross. Especially if it's like pudding. I can't imagine Refilling any pudding. soup on the planet that I'd want more of if I finished it. Okay, well, that's just you. But anyway, <laughs> with these refilling bowls, participants ate 73% more soup than normal. Damn! But they didn't report feeling any more full. Why? Because the way we think about fullness is wrong. We are so impacted by our environments. That's why I think it's so dangerous to say, oh, if you're overweight, it's a personal problem. It's an environment problem. So, so you think we should end Thanksgiving? Yeah, for many for reasons. For many reasons, yeah. Many <laughs> I was going to say, like, for many reasons. Yeah. Being Native American, I was like, yeah, maybe for many reasons. <laughs> but, like, but I, I do think that, like, that's that's one of the more dangerous holidays. Oh, it's a horrible. Yeah. It's a horrible The way we treat it, holiday. where you, you make different stops and all that stuff. Just that's, be grateful. Yeah. That's it. Just, just, just end it there. So I would say this goes to the point that you were making before about fast food places being your environment. This goes beyond a personal issue. It's a societal issue with some members of society impacted much more than others. So if you want to see systemic racism in action, this is one of those yeah. places. Like if you take a look at the findings from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, it shows that black, Mexican-American, and Native American adults and children are more likely than white Americans to be overweight and obese. 
And among Latinx immigrants, researchers Duffy and team found that the longer they stayed in the U.S., the fewer fruits and vegetables they ate. <laughs> what do you think is going on here with particularly non-white Americans, but it's also very much connected to socioeconomic like these, status? These are the places in my neighborhood, like I said, it's all fast food, the whole strip. I remember figuring out what we we're going to eat. You just drive down like we're all like, oh, we all disagreed on what we wanted for the evening. But we would drive down that same street on Vance Jackson and we would each stop and get our own bag of fast food. That's not okay. And that was like the and that cultural was the norm. norm. That was the cultural norm for that neighborhood. Yeah. And I think that's where it gets really complex because part of it is your neighborhood. Part of it becomes culture, right? Part of it is your neighborhood shapes your culture and your norm. But to your point, this is a concept that became known in the UK and then transferred over to the US. There are many areas particularly in low-income urban and rural places called food deserts. Hmm. Food deserts are places where you have very easy access to fast food and no easy access at all to fruits, fruits and, vegetables. and vegetables. Yeah, And, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense because, like, if a place were to open that was healthier, it would be more expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, it wouldn't have the same fun clown and ball pit you know what i mean like it it wouldn't i don't see why we can't have i'm saying like i don't know why we can't have a a ball pit in a fruit and veggie stand (laughs) i agree that's true okay so maybe one solution is add the ball pit. make it more inviting and and then make the fruit and vegetable places as entertaining and as cheap as you would mcdonald's and all the other places so here's where it gets absolutely horrifying So in the U.S., not only are unhealthy foods easier to come by, their prices are artificially driven down by government subsidies. According to the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, meat, dairy, and sugar production received 63% of subsidies in the United States. Meat and dairy alone get about $40 billion each year, with less than 1% of that amount going to support fruit and vegetable production. And check this out. So there's a study that looked at the five top sources of calories in the U.S. Do you want to guess? Dairy, I would think, sugar, and uh, beef. Some of those are right. Some of those are wrong. So so the number one, grain-based desserts like cakes, cookies, donuts, pies. Oh, that makes sense. Number two, yeast breads. Number three, chicken and chicken dishes. Mm -hmm. Number four, soda, energy drinks, sports drinks. And number five, pizza. Oh, well, five. Pizza's good. That's it. (laughs) But you know it's funny. But these is are that, all government subsidized. Absolutely, it is. Pizza's not government subsidized. It is because of the dairy and the oh, and the wheat. Uh, but you know it's funny because they push chicken yeah. as a healthier yeah. option to beef. But Isn't it's that crazy? wild because we're literally using tax dollars to make unhealthy food cheap, not to mention imprison and abuse farm animals. And then we use tax dollars again to pay for people's medical bills because so many of us are getting sick. But the government set this foods. up. I mean, not not any conspiracy, but like... We're sort of trapped in this Yeah, animal. because this is what the government asked the farmers to invest in. Hey, turn your things into corn farms so, and then we'll buy the shit out of your corn and then we'll make corn syrup and corn starch and that's why there's corn in our beef. That's why there's corn everywhere. You know... And And corn feeds the livestock that we then end up eating and getting sick from Mm -hmm. eating. Not knocking corn. I love some corn on the cob. (laughs) But but it's all about moderation. And until recently, you actually would be penalized if you used any of your government subsidy for growing those subsidized foods. uh, If you used any of that toward fruits and vegetables. Like the government would actually be like, no, 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 you can't use it for that. And so this is what I mean by systemic racism is think about the downstream consequences of you grow up eating these things that leads to poor nutrition, health problems. And then if you think about even young kids in school having a hard time concentrating. So it's a really, really serious thing. And again, really important to look at as a systems thing versus as a personal flaw. 
as we wrap up, maybe we can talk about some things we could do on a macro or societal level and then talk about the micro level. Sure. On a macro level, it's really about subsidy reform, I think, mm-hmm. is one of the That's best places idea. to start. Right. So r- there is some research that looked at which interventions actually help, particularly in low-income communities. One really straightforward systemic thing is changing bus routes so the buses actually stop near grocery stores. Hmm which is not possible in many, many places or not currently happening in many places. And what about food education? Like something as simple as like, I mean, I know we had nutrition class in school, but that was back when we were learning the pyramid, you know, the the food pyramid and three, four basic, three basic food groups or whatever and all that bullshit. It doesn't have to be that. Like The thing is that there's evidence that shows that education doesn't help all that much. For kids, school lunches can make Hmm. a huge impact because it's one thing for someone to be like, here's what you should be eating. It's another thing to be like, here, eat this. I also think, and this is this is going to sound like it doesn't have anything to do with it, but it really does. I think all lunches should be free in public school <laughs> and it should all be healthy stuff. It should all be good. I'm not saying it doesn't have to be, it can't be delicious. I'm yeah. saying it could be really good, but, you know, start replacing things with like plant-based. And so that way you can get great amount of proteins for growing bodies. Fruits and uh, vegetables Fruits and vegetables. Yeah, but, but yeah, and start introducing them at, at early age our tax dollars should be going to our future and that means taking care of the bodies of the people that are going to be taking care of us and making laws and decisions down the road and that's the thing our tax dollars are already going to subsidize foods so instead we can just reroute that money Mm -hmm. to subsidize healthy foods there are organizations like friends of the earth that have been pushing plant-based meals in schools they're getting huge resistance of course from the meat industry sure that's going like no kids must eat meat because they're trying to get kids hooked on meat early right. on you know <laughs> so i'm with you that education in theory is important but at the end of the day it's like you need access you yeah need- maybe maybe it's not education maybe maybe you're right maybe we don't need a class on nutrition maybe we just need to get the food on their plates yeah. and just don't question it this is this is what your lunch yeah, is, this is it's a free eat. lunch it's a, it's it's a wonderful spread boom you can still have your french fries and stuff like that but let's mix it with some things that are going to benefit them you know it's funny for those who don't know I'm a voiceover artist and a few clearly uh, well thank you for so uh, I don't even know why I hum there. Uh, that's not. I've never had an audition where I had to sing. I don't even know why I did that. Um, also, that's not even a hum. That's not even a hum. I was just like holding a note that doesn't exist. Anyway, maybe try this. In a world. That's pretty good. I, I'm that's available good. for anything. So, uh, so I was doing, I was getting these voiceover auditions and we had our friends over who are both vegan and I got this audition for milk and I was like, oh, this is cool. So I was just going, I wasn't even reading the message. I was just reading the thing like, uh, like the so audition. focused on your Yeah, I was just focusing voice. on like, and I gave it to you, Andy and Alyssa to read and you called it propaganda. Oh. And I was like, was what are you horrifying. talking about? So I went back and reread it and I was like holy shit I'm part of the system I'm the problem because it was all like anti-plant based anti this meanwhile I was already vegetarian at the time I think and and I was like oh my god no like, we don't even notice it didn't even dawn on me and I remember someone from the meat industry was talking about uh, when plant-based meats were hitting homes earlier, late last year, and he was like, it destroys more of the community. It's it destroys- like presidential debates or it's, something where it's they're all insane, just saying horrible things. You can just say them. anything. You can yes. just say anything, you yeah. know? And I was, yeah. So I think it starts with that type of reform where you find ways to get fruits and vegetables first and foremost, yeah. just get kids eating fruits and vegetables, bus routes, as I mentioned, two other things that research shows has actually helped, which is if you're going to provide subsidies 
focus on local stores, you know, like those small stores, often there isn't access to supermarkets, mm-hmm. but they'll have like, we call them bodegas. Yeah. I don't know what they're called in other areas. They often just don't have the money to refrigerate fruits and vegetables. And sometimes it's a matter of providing a stipend of $15, sure, but they have money. $2,000. They have like four freezers for beer. Yeah, well, that's And true. that's the truth. I mean, that's what's hard about it, right? It's yeah. complex because they're like, well, people aren't buying it. Yeah. So you kind of have to try to make it more accessible and more frequently seen. And people need that constant exposure to change some of those habits. Uh, one of the most successful approaches to getting people to eat more healthy foods was or is this program called Health Bucks, where individuals living in low-income areas are given funds specifically that they can only use toward fruits and vegetables. One of my favorite uses of health bucks is when it's in collaboration with farmers markets. So local farmers get those health bucks. Oh, there so you go. it's a way to encourage people and make it more accessible for yeah. people to eat healthy. All right, let's talk about micro level. Okay. On the micro level, I would say the most helpful thing about the research is to just stop thinking of overeating or being overweight as a willpower problem. We all, as human beings, have willpower problems. (laughs) The twist here is that we have to recognize that we have low willpower, and instead of trying to change our ability to control ourselves in the moment, we have to change and reshape our environment. This is what Gil Kane and these guys were trying to say when they invented the Green Lantern, whose powers are based solely on willpower. He's given this ring from this a dying alien, and it works on willpower. And everyone was like, okay, well, anyone would have gotten it, right? So, like, if I was there, I would have gotten the ring, and I would be the Green Lantern. But no, it only went to the person who had the strongest amount of willpower, because and his was even greater than Superman's. His willpower is even greater than Batman's. And I would argue that the Green Lantern is the problem with our society. What? Because if he's seen as the epitome of what it means to be a good human we all then feel shame and guilt for our lack of willpower. But fundamentally, to be a skilled human is not to try to improve your willpower, it's to try to shape your environment. What I'm saying is that he's not the perfect human. He actually turns evil, becomes parallax, tries to reshape the world. Willpower sucks. Right, willpower sucks. So it's not about having the strongest willpower, it's about fighting to do better. And to that, I would say, let's stop trying to have better willpower and let's just have more cabinets where we can hide our food. And to that, I would say, if you're Green Lantern, you can manifest those cabinets with the energy from the ring and basta, we're back to willpower. Okay, so if you do not have a magical ring, here's some things you can do. (laughs) First of all, you can just stop buying things. Willpower works in short bursts. It Mm -hmm. does not work in prolonged bursts, Mm -hmm. and it does not work when you're in front of pudding. (laughs) Works on fire in front of pudding. (laughs) If I'm far from pudding, I can still have the willpower to not go to the pudding. Once the pudding's in front of me, it's over. <laughs> go to the pudding is going to be our new phrase. I'm so go- this is babe, why... I'm going to the pudding. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I beg of you not to bring pudding into this household. So you can just try to use the, the little yourself. tiny bits yeah. of willpower in your present to, to help out your future self. Help yourself. Don't bring those things into your home. If they are in your home and you want to indulge in small quantities, hide them. You laugh at me because I hide things like those pretzel balls. And I Which I behind. sat on the other day. So <laughs> I didn't know you were going to hide them in the couch. You can also use smaller plates or just smaller portion sizes. You can eat without any distractions. Get smaller hands. Or somehow make your mouth smaller. 
<laughs> just shrink. I just general. remember that stuff they used in Bugs Bunny where they put that salt uh, in their mouths would get really tiny because it would be so sour. Oh, and I thought that good. was like something that actually eat happened. sour things. Yeah, like eat tart things. Or well, how about that? You ready for a hack? Yeah. Whenever you're feeling hungry, go put toothpaste on your tongue. Is that real? Well, it numbs your taste buds for a while, so nothing's going to taste good. As long as you're good. not preventing yourself from actually eating the meals that you should be. No, eating. no, no. I'm saying like if you if you're like I finished dinner, I want a snack. I want that pudding. Yeah. Go put a little toothpaste in your mouth and try to eat pudding after that. You're going to be like, that's disgusting. I, I'm not saying that's a bad idea, but here's, here's another idea. It's a great idea. idea. People are going to be right. <laughs> Don't you see when you say it's not, I'm not saying it's not a bad idea. Yeah. It's a bad idea. Here's another idea. Okay, there you go. And actually, this is an example of what I'm about to tell you is to think addition versus restriction. This is often kind of like a mantra, particularly in binge eating support groups. Addition versus restriction. Restriction is really tough for our brains because we don't like when things are taken away from us. I don't know if you notice this, but every morning when we're eating breakfast, the first thing I do is put greens in my bowl. Mm -hmm. So the idea is instead of going, I'm going to eat less of this fatty thing, you go, I'm going to eat more of vegetables, greens, fruits, berries, whatever it is. So you eat more of those things, fill up on that. You don't like this idea. I just don't know how that's better than my toothpaste. (laughs) I guess you can fill up on I'm still waiting for the the aha of the toothpaste being better than toothpaste. Okay. Or yours seems very complex. Yeah, but also mine in- includes actually eating fruits and vegetables. And mine takes care of two things: not eating garbage and <laughs> cavity prevention. Okay. So, here's another thing you could do. If you are feeling like you want to snack on mm-hmm. stuff or if you want to keep eating, and this is something that's really helped me uh, ever since I started preparing for this episode. I don't know if you noticed, but I've been binge eating less for a while there. <laughs> What's really been helping me is starting to question my own body cues so for example if you're craving sugary snacks a really helpful thing to do is just to go am i just tired do i need more energy Mm. do i need to get more sleep Mm. Um, am i thirsty am i actually just bored am i actually feeling sad am i actually trying to numb some of those feelings so actually kind of like talking to your body and saying how does this feel in my body what am i feeling right now do i actually want more food i talk to my body all the time like hey mr elbow why are you so ashy or hey mr (laughs) heel how are you doing down there (laughs) and last but not least pick your health metaphor so in a study by huang and acre across 1600 participants from north america and africa people were more likely to stick to positive health habits if they were given the metaphor of being on a journey versus telling themselves that they have reached a destination so the metaphor we give ourselves about our health habits makes a really really big difference so on that note here's to your health journey dear listeners And thank you for joining our podcast journey. And here's something to chew on. If you want more people to join the journey, please share a review or pass on this podcast to other folks you know. Since we're talking about food and nutrition, treat this podcast the way a mama bird would treat it to a baby bird. And if you like it, you'll chew this podcast and then spit it into someone else's ears or mouth so they can benefit from it, you know. Yeah. Since we're talking. And thank you for listening to... Talk psych to me. me.